Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. Um, If you brought a Bible, let's open up. We will start in Isaiah 55. Uh, In the consideration of a passage there um, in Isaiah 55, uh, as you're turning there, I want to, again, just say what a joy it is for our family to be here over the weekend with you guys and to be able to share in a variety of experiences. Um, Yes, we're grateful for the gatherings and what the Lord does, and and all of that is extraordinarily significant. Um, meaning the impact upon our individual lives and journeys and then collectively as a people and as the people of God here in this church family. Um, We're also really grateful for the time that we get to spend with um, your pastors, Chad and Tahila. It's been a real joy. Um, We feel like we are of the same DNA, and so we love and honor these guys and uh, we're just, we, we feel very privileged to be able to contribute in some small way towards what the Lord is doing here and his purposes um, for you as a people and this city and this region. Um, may Jesus be exalted as king and may his beauty overtake the hearts and lives of men. Um, amen. Uh, as we look at Isaiah 55 tonight, um, I, I feel in my heart a particular direction um, that I believe is from the Lord. Uh, last night, we considered uh, being hospitable to the Lord in the overall idea of obeying him as an expression of love and being free from the things of this life so that our ongoing experiences, we can freely give our lives to the Lord and not be either restricted in the places where we might be willing to obey him or um, have these different hurdles and at times difficulties with giving over spaces and conversations of our life. Um, it's just a real challenge in an ongoing way because of the world system that we live in and the constant pressure to conform to the ways of the world. Um, When Jesus prays in John 17, he's praying for us, right? He says, I pray for those that will come to believe in me. And he says, I'm not praying that you rescue them from the world, right? The, the, The goal is not escapism of sorts, he says, I'm praying, uh, I'm apostoloing, right? Apostoloing. Um, I'm apostolically commissioning a people. I'm praying that you send them, even as I am sent, into the world. Yes, protect them from the evil one, but may they be in it, but not of it. All right, so the goal in our lives as a born-again people, as the people of God, is to be planted in the world, but like 1 Corinthians 6.17, to come out, Right? Those of us that give ourselves to the Lord, there's union there, 1 Corinthians 6.17, and then 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, come out and be separate. Right? So there's supposed to be something about us that creates a contrast. 
a distinction, an intersection, where there is a notable difference upon who we are as individuals and the way that we live our life. Right In Isaiah 55, Isaiah would say it this way as he's um, prophesying or projecting the heart of God to a people. And in verses uh, 8, he says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? The idea is, I'm not like you. Praise God. Right? That, that's good news. Right? It's one of the uh, epic reasons that the gospel is good news. I'm not like you. Right? The gospel is about God. Right? It's not about us. Uh, it's not about our self-absorbed, self-centralized culture and the conditioning that wants to reduce everything down to the individual desires of a person. Um, my dream, my truth, my desires, ah, da, 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 da. I, 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 mine, mine, mine. Um, the gospel is amazing news because it's about God. And in Isaiah 55, he says, I'm not like you. I don't think the way that you do. I don't do things the way that you do. And so tonight I want to continue, uh, if we could, in the same thread or in the same vein or lane of thought, um, obeying the Lord, being hospitable to him, because it is undeniable that as we come to God, as God is transforming our lives, that one of the ways that God finds himself to be glorified is to lay individual or unique purposes upon a person and a people. Different objectives, different assignments, different unique callings. Um, many times at which uh, where we rally around God's selection of a person and uh, we're puzzled, uh, we question. At times we wonder to ourselves, how um, do you know them the way that I know them? Um, do you consider their challenges, their weaknesses? Um, God chooses a person that has every reason to be disqualified from the thing that God is asking them to do and then chooses an absolutely disqualified individual and reveals himself in faithfulness and power and is glorified in the ongoing journey of a person that he is going to transform over time to qualify them when the world recognizes they had every reason to be disqualified from the thing that God said they were. Um, there's been many individuals throughout the scripture and throughout the examples that the Bible gives for us to glean from, to take notice of, and also to find encouragement and strength in the variety of journeys that we may be on in our own individual lives. Consider Abram, right? God rallies up to Abram in Genesis 12 and reveals to him three things that God says, I'm on the hook for. In Genesis 12, we get um, what you could call things that God must resolve. And when you understand this, it actually frames in the remainder of the Old Testament, and in large part, a lot of the New Testament. It makes things a whole lot clearer to be able to see and understand. In Genesis 12, God tells Abram, there's three things I'm on the hook for. It's in verses 2 and 3. He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a great people, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. He says, I'm going to give you land, right? So this is centralized to Israel and especially the city of Jerusalem, where we know 
that Jesus will establish a throne. He will rule the nations. The knowledge of God will be unfolded throughout all of creation in an ongoing way. It will be a beautiful reign of the rightful ruler of the creation and the universe. So Jerusalem-centric, meaning I will give you land, not just any land, but it is absolutely defined. He says, I will make you to be a great nation or to be a people. So we recognize that even in that, there is a particular calling or an election. There is a choosing or an assignment upon the people of Israel that gets prophesied to Abram. So we get the prophetic revealing or declaration of a land, of a people, and then all the nations of the earth. This is every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Right? This is gospel. It is Jew and Gentile. It is the great reconciliation of the nations, a people as the promised inheritance of Jesus. And here in Genesis 12, we get the three things that God must resolve. And God tells Abram, I'm choosing you to be a part of this story. Now, Abram realized it's not going to have a whole lot to do with how perfect you are, because along the way, your performance isn't necessarily going to measure up Um, There's going to be different issues. There's going to be different challenges. There's going to be things that we encounter along the way that if I were to only allow the hinge point to be your contribution in the calling that I'm putting you upon, then there's no shot that you would have to be able to fulfill this. If you remember, he doesn't only reveal the call to Abram, but he also puts him into a sleep. And then the covenantal experience or exchange, there's the cutting of the animal into two pieces. And who walks through the center of the pieces? If you remember the story, it's the oven and the flaming torch. It's father and son by the power of the spirit. God says, I am covenanting myself to this purpose and I am calling you, I am inviting you to participate in the purposes of God and I am going to qualify you, I am going to perfect your participation even when it doesn't measure up in your own estimation, I am still choosing you, I am involving you and I am going to be glorified as I walk with you and accomplish through you the very things that I am calling you or assigning you to walk with me to fulfill. It's extraordinary. And this gives us a reference point, right? It gives us a reference point for what can be the remainder of a variety of experiences where we find imperfect people participating in the will of God. And we find God being glorified in revealing what is an extraordinary vision to weak, broken fragile, at times insecure people that simply choose to offer to God a yes, right? It's the issue of the little boy when the multitude needs to be fed, and he comes forward with five loaves and two fish, and he says, Jesus, I may not have much, but this is what I've got, and if you'd be willing to take what I have and use it for your glory, Lord, if you'd be willing to take this little bit that I feel like I have to offer to the equation, 
I might not have the right resume. I don't necessarily have the right upbringing. I don't have the right social circle. I might not have all of the greatest amount of resources, but what I do have is five loaves and two fish, and what I do have is a yes. And Lord, if you can use a yes and this seeming weak, broken reach for God, then let's partner together and let's do this thing because I long to see you glorified in my life and the fulfillment of your purposes. Right, it's David as a young shepherd boy standing in front of a giant, and he's got five smooth stones and a little sling. And he's like, but I know the Lord. Right, so it's, it's beautiful to see the call that God will rest upon a people. And this is what I would like to submit to us this evening, because I believe I'm sitting in a room uh, with people full of vision and calling. And I don't say that in some sort of cheerleader, Christianese kind of way, um, right? And it's important to contextualize what I mean by call, because the gospel is such a beautiful and powerful uh, calling or objective that it becomes the equalizer between the businessman and the stay-at-home mom. Right? The gospel becomes the equalizer between who seems to be the preacher or pastor or itinerant minister and the college student. Right? Because how do you harness a people into an objective or an assignment when we're not necessarily creating the same totem pole value system like the rest of the world does? where we're looking at individual responsibilities and then trying to qualify people according to their value based off of what their unique assignment might be. Anybody who's walked with God long enough realizes that you really shouldn't stake your whole identity in your assignment because your assignment at any given moment can shift and change. And if you think you are what it is that you do, well, then you're no longer being asked to do the things that you've done. Then you'll be devastated in the idea of who it is that you are, right? And so we want to, in some way, detach in the healthy way, right? We want to be responsible, but we want to be good stewards of anything that God will entrust to us or anything that he will ask us to be responsible for. We want to be great stewards, but we want to be free so that we can do anything God might ask us to do, right? It's a beautiful glimpse when we look at the life of Daniel, right? In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says that Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the delicacies that are coming to him across the king's table. Daniel makes a decision that one of the battlefields in Babylon is going to be what the culture is feasting on. And he realizes, I can't feast on what the rest of the culture is feasting on if there is going to be a distinction. If I am going to be different, I have to have a different diet than the rest of the culture. I just can't be exposed to what everybody else is exposed to. I can't take in the same things that everyone else is taking in. I can't feast where everyone else is feasting. I have to be free enough from Babylon to be able to serve God's purposes in Babylon. And so Daniel was free enough from Babylon in order to fulfill the particular assignment or call that God laid upon him while he was fulfilling the will of God in Babylon. And we know that it was tested. 
as it will be uniquely in all of our lives. Right? Daniel outlasted, if you would, four or five kings. He gets called into Babylon as a teenager. And we are given an account of Daniel's life that spans over 80 plus years of faithfulness to God in a hostile environment, in a pagan and wicked and corrupt culture, serving with excellence and in the fear of the Lord and fulfilling a particular call based off of a purpose and a platform that God gave to Daniel. Now, God established a platform. Now, I'm not talking about a platform because he was some sort of uh, a preaching figure in his day. No, no, no. Daniel was actually an intercessor, right? In Daniel 6, when they write legislation, they come looking for him because they've evaluated his life and they find that the only thing that they can nail Daniel down in is in his consistent devotion to God. And they outlaw prayer for everyone because they want to stop one person from being able to pray. Right? This is staggering. It's stunning. They write laws for everyone because they want to stop one person from praying. And it says, when Daniel found out the new laws of the land, he went home. And just as he had always done, for his life was shaped around three times a day in the place of prayer. Just as he had always done, he went to the upper room and opened up the window and got down on his knees and cried out in intercession and in the place of prayer again. I want to consider tonight that in the ongoing journey of our lives, each one of us are going to be responsible in places of calling and influence. And again, I'm not contextualizing that to some important space. However, it is that we might qualify that in our own evaluation, uh, because I would suggest to you that every space is important to God, that every space, every place of influence is important to the Lord. And God doesn't minimize and trivialize the places where he has uniquely called us to. The people that we are impacting on a day-to-day -day basis, the lives that we are influencing, the bearing of a destiny, of a dream, of a call upon our lives. And God is the one that has called you. God is the one that has positioned you. God is the one that is transforming you. And God is the one that will qualify you to continue in fulfilling the very thing that he has assigned you to do. And along the way, it is going to require a certain measure of walking with the Lord and consistent transformation in order to continue to discern the purpose that will be attached to our place of influence. The scripture gives us promises of a transformed people that don't think like the rest of the world. Right? 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, we carry certain promises in the spirit. There's an inheritance. He says, for you've not been given a spirit of fear. Right? So hear that. You've not been given a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit is not empowering a fear-filled people. Now, yes, we walk in the fear of the Lord, but that's not the same thing as what's being referenced in 2 Timothy 1.7. Fear, meaning fear of punishment, which John speaks about in 1 John 2, 1 John 4, right? Perfect love casts out all fear. 
So the work of the love of the Father in each one of our lives by the power of the Holy Ghost is to give the eviction notice to fear in every space where it can be found. So we're not a people that are motivated by fear. We're not a people that live as captives to fear. We're not a people that are living in bondage to fear. We're, we're not motivated in our decisions. We're not motivated in our perspective. We're, we're not at all supposed to be considering fear in the way that we're influenced to do the things that we're doing. We're free. God has filled us. He's dynamically changed us. We have a new nature before the Lord in an ongoing way with a different appetite. There's power at work on the inside to make us the people that God longs for us to be. But he says, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. A sound mind. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.16 after this beautiful language, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men, those things that God has prepared for they that love him. But in verse 16, he closes out 1 Corinthians 2, Paul yet again. And he says, but we have access to the mind of Christ by the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit is not only giving us a sound mind that is free from fear, the Spirit is also giving us access to the mind of Christ where we don't have to rely upon our own thoughts, previous lenses, previous ways of thinking, previous conditioning that led us to make decisions and evaluate things the way that we used to whenever we were ambassadors of the world system or whenever we were championing the desires of the system of the age. No, we are now free. We are now changed. We are now transformed. We've been given a new nature. It is now a transformed mind. It's a beautiful, new, and powerful reality, and we have access to the mind of Christ. We can know what Jesus is thinking, and we can live in harmony or in union with Jesus in an intimate way and share his thoughts by the Spirit. Well, Paul writes in Romans 12 also, and he says, hey guys, listen, in verse 2, we're, we're familiar with this verse. He says, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Right now, again, he's talking to believers, right? This is, it's not some evangelistic letter directed at the world. He's talking to the church in Rome. And he says, don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you might be able to actually discern or to test and approve what the perfect will of God is. The idea is that at times, if we are not thinking right, if we are allowing the influences of the world or at times unique incentives that are challenging us in the place of our desires, at times it may be difficult to discern God's purposes if we are not actually walking in real spirit-powered discernment. Here again, we have the words of Isaiah. I don't think the way that you do. And I don't do things the same way that you do. And it's something that we have to consider. 
is that there are going to be moments, there are going to be episodes, there are going to be times along the way in our call, in our assignment, in the unique things that God will invite us in order to accomplish. There are going to be unique moments, times, and seasons where discernment is absolutely going to be necessary in order to determine the purpose with which God is looking to accomplish. Because it's challenging along the way. It is. It's challenging along the way. Um, There are a host of influences that are at all times longing to point us in the right direction. Longing to incentivize us. Longing to chart a path or a trajectory for us that we would align our hearts and our efforts with. Daniel was challenged during his time in Babylon. In chapter 5, if you remember, Belshazzar is king. They're at a party. He's making a mockery of the things of God. He calls for what is the um, the cutlery and uh, the cups and different things. And, and they're partying and they're drinking. And in the midst of all of what is their festivities, it says that a hand manifests. <laughs> Right in the middle of their party, a man's hand manifests and starts floating in the air. First off, I'd have passed out. (laughs) Party over. And not only does the hand manifest, but it starts to write something on the wall. And Belshazzar's advisors say, hey, listen, bro, there's a man in the kingdom that your dad used to employ. There's a man in the kingdom in which the spirit of the gods is in. There's a man in the kingdom who has an excellent spirit. He's loyal in every possible way. There's been no corruption found in him. He has wisdom beyond what is all of the wise men or the magician or the the astrologers and all of these guys. And Belteshazzar says, bring him in. And when Daniel enters into the situation, Belteshazzar says, hey, bro, listen, we're going to reward you. We're going to give you all types of gifts and we're going to give you all types of notoriety and responsibility and we'll lay upon you influence. And in Daniel 5, Daniel looks at the king. Now, granted, if you're familiar with the life of Daniel, then you realize that Daniel has already rebuked kings, (laughs) that Daniel has already stood in the place of conviction, even when the consideration of his own life was on the line and Daniel has had dreams and he's interpreted dreams and he looked into the face of Nebuchadnezzar and he says, bro, um, this is what the dream means. God is judging you, right? So Daniel has already stood in the place of testing and conviction, but he looks at Belteshazzar and he says, hey man, listen, keep your gifts. You can't buy me. You can't buy me. Now this is wild. Right? Because the influence of the hour and those who seem to be powerful in the moment are trying to incentivize him. They're trying to incentivize him with resources, with finances, with influence. And Daniel is a man of discernment. He's a man of conviction. He's a man who understands that it's not just the what that's important, but it's also the way. And sometimes we get so obsessed with the what that we compromise the way. That we think any way 
that we can find ourselves into the what is the only thing that matters. Because all people value, all they applaud, all that matters, especially in the system of the world, but even in unique places of influence in our own hearts, and then other times in church culture and ministry culture and just life in general. So many times we obsess over the what. And many of us, we're striving and we're trying to utilize all of our relationships and all of our influence and all of our resources and all of our finances to try to push and press our lives into a what that other people are going to applaud, into a what that other people are going to say, now you're important, into a what that other people are going to think, well, now you're doing it and now you're doing something that's actually making a difference. And Daniel is under fire in the moment. Because he has an opportunity to connect his life into a what that seems to really matter. And Daniel says, hey, look, man, you can't buy me. Because I know the Lord. And in knowing the Lord, I realize that it's not only the what that matters to God. But it's also the way. The way matters. Hear that. The way matters matters. God is absolutely concerned. He is absolutely interested in the way. The what is not all that matters. Matthew 7 tells us that there will be a category of folks at the end of the age who had the what going on. And in the evaluation of their lives, they say to the Lord, did we not fill our lives with a bunch of what? Like, did we not prophesy Did we not flow in power? Did we not cast out devils and raise the dead? And Jesus is like, yeah, you did. You had a whole lot going on, but I never knew you. We didn't do it together. We weren't intimately tied to the way that it all happened. The way absolutely matters. And we live in a world that so values the what. And many times we believe that the means or the end justifies the means, right? That so long as you can arrive, it doesn't really matter how you got there. And at times we think that nobody really cares as long as we can arrive, as long as we can get into whatever it is that's the space or the place right? The platform, the influence, whatever the objective is, whatever the, 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 the thing is that everyone else is going to look at and be in awe and be fascinated with. And no, 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 no. We have to learn that along the way, there are going to be unique moments that test the way that we are handling ourselves. There are. There are going to be unique moments that test the way that we are going about what we are doing. And I'd like to consider two different individuals that get tested in the way and bring an evaluation to, you could consider it to be the conflict of two caves, right? And the cave being the unique moments of testing that comes upon our lives where most times we don't even know that we're being tested, (laughs) right? If you knew when the test was coming, If you knew the day that it was going to happen, if you knew the people that were going to be involved, if you knew circumstantially how it was all going to be packaged together, then most times I would hope to God that we would at least pass the test. 
right? If we had enough time in order to prepare, it's like getting the cheat sheet before that exam back in school, right? And having all the answers to the test before you actually have to go in that day. You, you seem to enter in with a different level of confidence, right? When you know the day the test is happening and you've already gotten the cheat sheet or you know what the exam is really going to be about, you walk in with a certain kind of swagger to each step. But often in this kingdom life and journeying, we don't know the day that the test happens. And many times it's in reflection where the Lord sits with us and evaluates the way that we have handled certain things in life in order to continue to coach and to encourage and to try to rally alongside of us and to influence. Um, it's not necessarily always pass or fail. Right? It's not like elementary school or grade school where, you know, if you fail the second grade 13 times in a row, sometimes they just kind of push you on anyways. They're like, bro, you can't be 18 in the third grade. Like, like this is just, bro, it's insane. Like, we're just going to make accommodation for you and just keep moving you through. You know, we'll channel you through even though. No, no, no. A lot of times, um, you know, we don't know when we're being tested. We don't know when we're being tested. Um, however, though, just like it was with Abram, right? In Genesis 22, it says, after some time, God circled back around to test the heart of Abram. Right? This is a man who had walked with God for decades, which means we don't graduate from testing. It doesn't mean that there comes a point in our life where God is disinterested in how we handle ourselves, where God is no longer concerned with the way that we go about fulfilling what it is that he's called us to do. Decades later, God circles back around to Abram, and there he is testing his heart again. Will you give Isaac to me? Right, and so we can't assume that we're going to graduate from the evaluation. We can't assume that just because we've obeyed the Lord and passed certain tests historically, that it automatically, as a byproduct, means that we are going to get a passing grade on every other evaluation that comes up. But the eyes of the Lord are always seeming to search to and fro. All right, 2 Chronicles 16.9. He's looking for a heart that is fully his through which he can reveal himself or show himself strong, right? David is a man called by God. I, I always, um, especially in this season of life, uh, laugh at the episode in 1 Samuel 16. David is out in the pasture minding his own business. He doesn't even know that what's going on in his house is even happening, right? Samuel comes to town. He's looking to anoint the next king. Jesse has seven other sons. He brings them all in, right? They're of different stature and abilities. They have a variety of qualifications. Some of them even visibly seem to fit the part. Jesse doesn't even invite David. They go through the whole ceremony of sorts, and Samuel is like, well, God's not speaking about any of these guys. And he looks to Jesse, and he's like, I know I heard from God. I know I'm supposed to be here. God specifically has given me instructions about one of your sons. Is there another? And Jesse's like, I mean, yeah, there's, there's another one. I mean, he's a little guy. I mean, he's like this little ruddy guy. 
Bro, like, I mean, he doesn't have, like, any super cool features. All right, he's not, like, tall and mighty. He's, you know, whatever. He's never really been responsible for a whole lot. He's actually out doing what seems to be the least of the responsibilities that would provide for him a certain credential or qualification to even be involved in the moment. And Samuel's like, okay, great, we're going to wait. Go get him. And they rush out to go get David, and they bring David in, and God says, this is the one I've been looking at. This is the one that I've been watching over. This is the one that though no one else sees, I see him. I know exactly where he is. We need to find encouragement in our hearts that when God is ready to invite you into something, it doesn't always necessarily matter other people's evaluation right now this doesn't give us a license to be a rebel right it's not like oh well nobody ever gets me nobody ever understands me I'm not talking about something that's birthed out of hostility something that's carried in the place of offense I'm not talking about something that's insecure that has trauma built into it over time because of how or the way that we've carried ourselves. I'm talking about authentically before God When we walk in a certain purity, when we walk in a measure of consecration and devotion to God, when we're not trying to jockey for power and position, when we're not trying to involve ourselves in the spotlight and always trying to create or manufacture some unique place of visibility, we know that we walk before the Lord and that God sees us. And because God sees us, it's cool if no one else is actually looking at us. And God says, I know that no one else is looking at David but I am. And I know exactly where he is and I know exactly what he's doing and I know that no one else thinks that it's important, but it's important to me. Because I've been building him, I've been developing him, I've been watching over him, walking with him, I've been tending to my purposes in his heart and in his life and I'm now ready to involve him in a certain way in the story or in the purposes of God and I'm going to reveal it to him in a very extraordinary way. And Samuel calls him in, and everyone rises, and Samuel tips the horn of oil over David's life. And he lays hands on him, and he prays for him. And this, in some ways, is really comical to me, because David's life turns into an absolute mess after Samuel prays for him. It's like, bro, I didn't ask for this. I didn't invite you to town. I didn't ask you to come to my house. I wasn't begging you to lay hands on me. As a matter of fact, this is very controversial and consequential for me. Because before you showed up, everything seemed to be all right. Like before you got here and said what you said and laid hands on me the way that you did and spoke destiny over me and prophesied to me and revealed God's heart to me, everything seemed to be rather calm in my life. But now everything has been upended. Everything got controversial. I seem to abound with issues and problems and pressure and enemies and adversaries. And I can link it all back, bro. I can link it all back to you. Like, I can link it all back to you, bro. I didn't ask for this. And Samuel lays hands on David and says to him some pretty incredible things. You're going to be the next king. And part of the issue at times in our life is we associate calling to be synonymous with commissioning. 
We think the two are the same thing. Um, and they're absolutely not. Um, they're absolutely not. Right? We think that because God says something about us, that it means we are the thing that God has said. And to a certain degree, we are. But we are and we are becoming. And that's the distance between calling and commissioning. It's called process. Where God processes us to actually be or to become the thing that can handle the thing that he said about us. Right? But we associate and make synonymous calling with commissioning. And we think that the moment that we recognize a particular call, the moment that we recognize a particular invitation, that we're ready to just upend everything else in our life and go running 100 miles an hour to do the thing that God has revealed to us. And it's not that way. It's not that way. That there's much development necessary in the place of those that are called for the moment that they get commissioned. There's much development that's necessary. Language is not enough. Relationships or social circles are not enough. Money is not enough. Social media influence is not enough because God is not testing you or qualifying you by all of the things that you can externally fuel or manufacture or sustain with your own strength or your own wisdom or all of these unique resources that you can leverage in order to keep the thing looking right. God is bringing his evaluation to what's actually happening on the inside of you and he's looking at if the right thing Things are happening in your heart while you're doing or desiring the things that he's revealed to you. For God doesn't evaluate things the same way that man does, is what Samuel says to Jesse. He's not qualifying people by the size of their muscles or their might. He's not qualifying people by their resources. He's not qualifying people by their relationship circles or their social strength. He's not qualifying people with, with how uh, witty you can be or how resourceful you can be in order to always be able to put together a package that's going to seem to be able to get the job done or to accomplish things your way. He says, but upon this one will I look. The one who's humble and contrite. The one who's broken or broken in spirit. Now that doesn't mean that we walk around with a broken spirit. But it's Matthew 5. It's the first. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. It's those who recognize a certain dependency upon God. God, I actually don't bring a whole lot to the table. And I realize that. And that's not to say that we're not um, talented, that we're not gifted. Uh, gifting alone won't get you through every season of life. Talent alone will not allow you to pass every test that God brings our hearts through. And it's because God is evaluating what's happening on a heart level and not just what we become proficient to do with our hands or even with the things at times we can think up in our heads. Here's where, again, Isaiah says, God's not like us. He's not thinking the way that we do, and he's not always doing things the same way that we are. Man, praise God for Romans 8, 28. For God is working all things together for good. To those that are called by his name, to those that love him, and to those that are aligned with his purpose, right? Praise God.
Well, God is the one that's working. And he's working all things together. That means all things. That means things you like, things you don't like. That means that he's tying together your successes and your failures. He's tying together your tragedies and your triumphs. He's using all of the circumstances, all of the scenarios, all of the variety of seasons of your life and your journey in order to accomplish what it is that he has said is good. Now, what he says is good might not always look good, may not always feel good, may not always put you in a position where your experience or the way that you're interacting with everything that's going on leads you to believe that it is good, but God is good. And if God is good. He says what he's doing is good, and it will require a real spirit-powered discernment in order to keep in step with God and what God is doing and the way that God is actually doing what he's doing. And David realizes this over the course of his life. 1 Samuel 24 has an episode where David finds himself in a cave, and I'm going to parallel that with 1 Kings 19, and where Elijah finds himself in a cave. 1 Samuel 24, David is in a broken and busted moment of his life. He's got the calling to be a king, but the labeling from the world around him as a fugitive. He has the calling to be a king. He's just in a unique season of life where God is qualifying him. And in that process of qualifying him, he is having to resist certain labels that the world around him is trying to brand him with. He's a fugitive. He's on the run for his life away from the very thing and the very place that God has called him to be. I'm sure that there were many tear-filled nights where David's life was confusing to him, Lord, I know what you said. I didn't just make that up. I didn't just manufacture that in my own strength. You said certain things about me. You brought a prophet into my living room and evaluated everyone else that was a part of my family. And you invited me into an extraordinary moment where you revealed destiny over my life, calling over my life. And now here I am. I'm fleeing day by day as a fugitive. David actually ends up in one moment in the cave of Adullam. It's interesting. We go to En Gedi when you're in Israel, and you're able to actually go to the caves where David was running from Saul, and you're able to see the place out in the wilderness. It's a broken and barren environment. It is a dry and desperate situation. And in the cave of Adullam, It says that David's mighty men, they would later become his mighty men, in the moment, the Bible describes them as a people that were broke, as a people that were broken, and as a people that were destitute, right? They they had labels, they they were seeming to be rebels, they were uh, in despair, Um, they were broke, literally. The broke, busted, and disgusted crew that David gets in the cave of Adullam is in a moment where he's battling in his own life to resist what the world is saying about him and to continue to stand in the right heart posture to believe by faith the things that he knows God has revealed to him. And he finds himself fleeing from Saul. And in 1 Samuel 24, it says that Saul 
after, in a certain way, engaging with the Philistines, comes with 3,000 men because he hears where David is. And he pursues David. And in his search for David, you're familiar with the story. It says that Saul goes into the cave to use the restroom to relieve himself. And while he's in there, it says that David's men rallied up to him and wanted to influence him and convince him. They say, now is the moment where God is going to do everything he said he would do in your life. Look at the way that God is setting things up for you. Now is the moment where you can kill the man that stands between you and everything that God has said about you. Look at how easy this is. David, look at how faithful to God you've been for him to open the door this way that he has. Look at the access point that God is creating. Look at the way that he's just lobbing it up, waiting for you to crush the home run right here in the cave. And it says that David yields himself to their counsel, and he doesn't actually kill Saul, but he comes over to him and he cuts the edge of his cloak. Now, what's interesting to me is that in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 24, it says, after these things, meaning after the whole episode in the cave, after Saul had come in, after his guys had attempted to influence him, after David had done the things that he did in order to satisfy a certain influence or agenda that was leading him or directing him to do what it is that he did. After these things, it says that David's conscience was moved. It says that his heart was bothered. And it says that he was so troubled on a heart level, on a conscience level, that he repented before God and came out and stood before Saul and called to him across the way. And it says that David prostrated himself before Saul and laid on his face before him in humility to repent of his wrongdoings. And Saul says to David, after everything that you know that I've done to you, after all of the wickedness, all of the corruption, all of the compromise, he says, you and I both know that I've had it out for you, that I've been trying to assassinate you. You know all the wrong that I've expressed or demonstrated in your direction. And after all of the hostility and all of the tragedy that I've brought to your life, this is how you're going to respond to me? When you had the moment to kill me and to seat yourself in the very place that God spoke to you about, in the moment where you could eliminate the resistance, so to speak, coming against you and trying to pressure you away from the things that God has said about you, he says, you're going to choose to be humble enough to honor me. You're going to choose to be meek and lowly and broken and to repent after everything that I've done to you? A couple of verses later, Saul says, you and I, we're not the same thing. He says, we're not the same thing. He says, you're surely a man of God. And everything that God has said about you is true. 
You see, it's interesting. We have to be careful who we receive counsel from in seasons when we're in process. We have to be aware of the voices that are attempting to influence us according to what is God's purposes. David's men rally around him and wanted to convince him that it was God's will for him to eliminate or to assassinate Saul because of the pressure that Saul was applying in order to create distance from the proximity that David had to what it is that he felt called to. And David opened up to the influence of those that thinking had his best interest at heart, right? Like had his best interest at heart. Uh, Interestingly enough, later in David's life, when he wants to build God a house, Nathan is alongside of him. And Nathan in 2 Samuel 7 says to David, everything that is in your heart, bro, go after it. Go do it. Bro, you're a man of God. God is with you. He's given you favor. He's given you authority. He's given you all of this stature. Everything that you're dreaming about, bro, like go for it. You are God's guy. And whatever is alive in your heart, absolutely go after it. Well, what's amazing to me is that the very next verse, right? That's 2 Samuel 7, the first four verses. I believe it's in verse 5. It says, and that very night... God visited Nathan in a dream. And he says, hey man, I didn't tell you to tell David any of that. Like you were just responding to his desire. And you were signing off on or authorizing certain things that I never influenced you to prophesy to him about. Right, right. The connection in some way would be Jeremiah 23 when the false prophets get rebuked and they get denounced, God says to them, you have a gift and out of your own giftedness, you're not being influenced by me, but you're being moved by the pressure and the desires of the people around you. And you're just telling them what it is that they want to hear. You are candy coating their desires and just responding to them out of what you know they're going to respond to. And he says, you prophesied, but I never spoke to you. You're declaring things and you're authorizing things that you're not moving under my influence. You're actually being influenced by other incentives. And he says you're using your platform and you're using your influence according to perpetuate your own agenda. And he actually rebukes them for it. He says you have a platform and you carry influence, but you are perpetuating your own agenda and not mine. And in 2 Samuel 7, it says God visits Nathan in a dream. And he says, I never told you to say that. Go back. Right? In my own life, I have experienced a variety of prophetic intersections and things along the way. I don't know if I have ever, ever experienced what happens in 2 Samuel 7. Where Nathan comes back to David. And he's like, hey man, listen. I know that yesterday... I was rah, 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 sis, boom, ba with all the stuff that like you were talking about. And I know, bro, like I was cheerleading it and I was even like in some ways like co-signing and like prophetically speaking to you. Bro, God rebuked the mess out of me last night. Like he rebuked the mess out of me last night. And it's not the Lord, bro. Like it's not the Lord, man. And I'm sorry. Like I should have never said the things that I said. And I have to repent of the way that I seem to prophetically influence the things that were going on. The Lord visited me and he rebuked me. 
and this is actually what God is saying to you. I don't know if I have ever had somebody come back to me and to say, God dealt with me about the way that I spoke to you or the way that I tried to co-sign or encourage you or exhort you in the desires that you were sharing. It is not God at all. That is not what God has for you. That is not what the Lord is saying to you. I repent of the things that I shared with you and encouraged you in. God has dealt with me and I have to make things right. David is standing in the cave and he's being influenced by counsel. Do you have enough discernment to recognize when counsel that is being shared with you from people that may be close to you in proximity? They may seem to have your best interest at heart, but they're trying to influence you to do things that are going to compromise the way that God is processing you. And if you're not aware of the process, and if you're not aware of the real heart level work that God is interested in doing, you're going to think that whatever shortcut gets created for you has to be the will of God for you because you value the what more than you do the way that God is going to establish in order for you to arrive at the what. And David realizes, he realizes that there's still work that needs to be done. Because in a moment, he was influenced by the what. And he realizes that the way actually matters to the Lord. And he says, this is not the way that I'm supposed to connect with the things that God has said to me. Because God's call has to bear God's character. What you do for Jesus also has to look like Jesus. It has to reveal him. In nature, in substance, in character, we have to embody the beauty of Jesus in the whatever it is that Jesus has actually called us to. We can't think that we can walk in the success of a call having corrupted the way that we got there, thinking that God is going to endorse it or sign off on it. And David realizes, and he comes out and he humbles himself, and he repents before God. Right? Perfection isn't necessarily the standard. It's how we bear up under the process. It's how we bear up under the process. Right? I am one that is puzzled by God's calling or choosing, his election that rests upon David's life, as I am with other men, and even in the consideration of my own life, <laughs> because I know what I'm giving God to work with. I know what everyone else applauds, but I also realize what it is that I'm giving God to work with. But David, a man after God's own heart? A man after God's own heart? A man who in Acts 4 says fulfilled the will of God in his generation? David is an adulterer. He's a rapist. He's a murderer. He's insecure at times. He's self-preserving at other times. But there's something about David that God really liked. There's something about David and the way that he leaned towards the Lord, even in moments of imperfection, that allowed David to continue to move through or graduate through the process of God. 
that continued to allow him in God's processing to bear the unique uh, platform or power or responsibility that God selected or elected him for. Right? Consider even like in the life of Moses. God is waiting for his guy. Moses is a man who God comes to in Exodus 3 after 40 years. 40 years of what? Well, Moses has attempted to work out the call of God in his own power. Moses recognizes a call on his life. I'm called to be a deliverer. God has a unique assignment that's on my life. And if you remember, he sees the Hebrew and the Egyptian fighting, and he rises up and he murders the Egyptian and buries him and tries to continue on with life as if nothing's ever happened. This is insane. Right? Like, this is for real. This is insane. And he flees. And after 40 years, God isn't like, you know what? Bro, you have so blown it that I am done with you. Right? Any one of us in our own evaluation would have been like, well, there goes option A. Get on the phone with option B. It's time to call the audible. Bring in the backup. It's time for whoever is this guy's replacement. Like we were hoping that Moses was going to be the guy, but he blew it. Whatever. The world so easily replaces us. Because the world cares more about the what than they do the who or the way that God processes people to qualify them. For him to be glorified in his consideration of a person or a people and being able to accomplish what seems like mission impossible in their life. And God waits for Moses for 40 years. Some of us, we're not waiting four hours for somebody after they've blown it. We're not waiting four days. God is waiting four decades. And he comes to Moses in order to realign him with what it is that he's called him to do. And Moses prays the prayer that God has been waiting for. I always think to myself, how capable of a man must Moses have been if it took 40 years for him to finally pray, God, I've got nothing. Moses says to the Lord, my days are past. Man, had you come looking for me 40 years ago, I was the man. I was powerful in word and in deed. I had it going on. God, you and me, we could have had a good thing going. We'd have made amazing tag team partners, baby. Like, had you actually come and got me in the prime of my life, I'd have been your guy and I knew it. And it's almost as if the Lord is like, Moses, that's exactly the problem. Right? The problem is you're so capable. The problem is, is you lean upon yourself as the ultimate resource of your life. I'm not looking to share my glory with anybody. And Moses, there's too much of you in the equation. And so I'm going to outweigh you. And I'm going to allow life and circumstance and process to break you down in certain ways so that when I circle back around and you and I we come to this conversation again. It took 40 years for Moses to pray the prayer that God had been waiting for. 
God, I got nothing. I don't have nothing to offer you. I can't do this, and now I can't even talk. Right? The process has affected the way that I even talk. <laughs> How beautiful it is in the eyes of the Lord, the death of his precious ones, of his saints. At least that's what the psalmist writes. And David finds himself humbling himself before the Lord and before people to say, this is not how God's going to do it. And if God is going to do it, he's going to have to do it his own way. But I know that this is not the way that honors God. And so if I have to continue to wait, I'm going to continue to wait. But I want to actually be the thing that God needs me to be whenever he puts me in the position that he's revealed to me or the unique assignment or placement in life to bear a particular influence. Well, Elijah finds himself in a cave as well in 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is on the backside of one of the most glorious victories of his life. Right? Elijah is peculiar. And we realize that 1 Kings 17 and 18 but after prophesying before Ahab and finding himself at the brook and going to the widow woman in Zarephath and raising the dead boy back to life and standing before all of what is the people of Israel and all of the wicked prophets of Baal and fire coming down out of heaven and slaughtering all of the prophets. Um, Elijah, interestingly enough, now finds himself in 1 Kings 19. It says that when Ahab and Jezebel catch word of what Elijah had done, that Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah. And she says, I know what you did. And within a certain time period, I am going to murder you for the things that you have done. And Elijah is so moved by the voice of Jezebel that it says he gets up and he begins to flee and he's running and he runs to Horeb or to the Mount of God, right? Interestingly enough, where God met with Moses and I'm sure that there were stories of the visitation of God to unique individuals over the history of men. And Elijah finds himself in this cave and God comes to him and he asks him, what are you doing here? And Elijah begins to give God the spiel. I'm the only one. No one else is faithful to you. All have forsaken you. They've all compromised. Everyone else has abandoned you. Oh, now the enemy is persecuting me and pursuing me. And God is like, why are you here? And Elijah once again responds with all of what is his evaluation of the pressure of his situation or his process. And God says, arise from this place and go and anoint Elisha in place of you. Now, interestingly enough, we realize if we look at Elijah's cave and David's cave, that based off of the influence that we yield to, some caves qualify us and other caves disqualify us. Some caves promote us and other caves seem to demote us. Some caves keep us moving forward 
in the things of God and other caves get us replaced in the things of God. Now, now I know that that may be controversial or tough language, um, but we have to understand that we are absolutely irreplaceable to God. That our value, again, is not inherently based on our assignment. That God has not connected us so much so with what it is that he's asking us to do. But there are things that God is looking to do. And we get to participate in the will of God and in the things of God. But depending on, on a heart level, how we handle ourselves and the unique influences that we allow to motivate us and move us and the counsel that we are opened up to and how that positions us or postures us in the things of God, then God's evaluation of source at times is going to lead us to the places where we might become replaceable in the things that God is doing. And it shouldn't actually be difficult as a thought process. Because in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai rallies up to Esther and he reminds Esther in an intervention of sorts. He says, Esther, you have to know that God is not using you the way that he's using you because of how beautiful you are, because of how gifted you are, because you're the only one that was able to hide out or to be preserved. It's not because of everybody that you know. It's not because you were able to do something so fancy or so favorable that it just moved you through the sequence of events or the cycle better than everyone else. You have to understand that God brought you through a process to give you that platform, but that platform carries a purpose that God is looking to accomplish. And Esther, if you're not careful, you are going to think in ways of self-preservation to preserve your own interests or purpose with the platform that God gave you rather than recognizing the very reason that God may have done the things that he did with you was so that in this moment, you could do the very thing that God is calling you to do. And the very thing that God is calling you to do may not necessarily align well with the interests of the world around you or based off of how you're actually seeing the situation and how you're open to unique incentives or influence. They may lead you to compromise the moment where the very purpose that God puts you in place is supposed to be demonstrated. Essentially, Mordecai says to Esther, you have the right placement, you just don't have the right perspective. You actually have the right platform. You're just not fulfilling the right purpose. And Esther, you need an intervention. You need to snap out of it. You need to awaken to the things of God. You need to come to life in God's purposes and die to the ideas of self-preservation. Right? What was Esther motivated by? Right? The Jews were on the verge of being annihilated, and Mordecai comes to Esther and he's like, You're the only one that can actually provide a resolve to what's going on. And he says, Don't think that you're going to be able to hide out in your little place of platform and power and influence. Don't think that everything that God has done in you, with you, for you is actually going to exempt you from paying the cost of what all that process was about. And Esther says, I can't go see the king because it may cost me my life. 
And after a time of fasting and prayer, she says, Mordecai, listen, three days, don't eat or drink. And me and my little team, we're going to do the same. And as I rise from the place of fasting and prayer, I will go in to see the king. And if I perish, I perish. Esther was essentially communicating. I would rather die fulfilling my purpose than die to my purpose and live in self-preservation. Preserving all of my unique interests, preserving all of the ways that I'm trying to leverage the things that God has done to me to uniquely incentivize me that now I've arrived in a particular place where I can create a variety of connections or influences that are favorable to me in order to preserve interests that I have with the platform that God processed me for. After a time of fasting and prayer, Esther says, I would rather die fulfilling the purposes of God than die to my purpose and live in self-preservation. Mordecai says to her, if you won't do what God is asking you to do, then deliverance will arise from another source. He's like, Esther, the plan of God is not about you. It's about God. And you are irreplaceable to God. But if you won't do it the way that God is calling you to do it, then he'll allow another to arise in your place. Elijah gets told, go and anoint Elisha in place of you. Some caves qualify, other caves disqualify based off of what's happening on a heart level. Now, it doesn't mean disqualified that we're removed forever. Again, we just contextualize that God waited four decades for Moses. I'm not moving on from you. You're my choice. I'm going to be glorified through me using you the way that I said I was going to use you. There may be some bumps in the road. There may be some ins and outs, ups and downs, but I'm working all things together and I'm working them together for good. You see, because the plan of God is about God, but we get so entangled with at times all of our unique desires that are attached to the thing that God calls us to do, that we're not free enough from the thing so that we can fulfill the thing the way that God calls us to. We get so entangled and we so easily become influenced along the way, which is why we always must be reminded God is not like us and he's not thinking like us. I'm sure they told John the Baptist Right in Mark chapter 6, where it says John was beheaded. Could you imagine John's circle? Like, hey, bro, listen, we get it, man. Like, you're that guy, right? Like, you're always going to be the guy that's you've got to be, right? Like, you just got to be that guy. Like, you got to be the guy that's always got something tough to say. You're always going to declare the word of the Lord. You're always going to confront. You're always going to die. Like, look, bro, not today. Like, we need you. You know what I'm saying? Like, live to rebuke another day. Like, not today, bro. Like, Herod is not playing games. Like, bro, if you rebuke him, he is going to imprison you, and he's going to cut your head off. Right? And you can see the influence of self-preservation. You can see the influence of other interests that are attached to a call that is upon John's life. I'm sure they told Stephen the day that he was stoned out in the streets. Listen, bro, we know God is with you. We know that you're really gifted and that you're called 
we need you. Like, calm down. When they call you out, you don't have to say anything. Like, we're not going to look at it as a loss. Like, just keep your mouth shut. We'll bring you home and we'll live to continue the work of God another day. And Stephen lets it rip. You stiff neck, corrupt, on and on and on. And they stone him to death. And he stands there with a glowing face, tears rolling off his cheeks, weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. And the Lord stands up in the heavens. That's my guy. We have to be careful that we don't become so easily influenced to accomplish the things of God the way that the world would appreciate or applaud. For the world and God are at odds and their value systems are not compatible. And we have to walk in a real spirit-empowered discernment to discern the purposes of God in unique moments and what God is actually asking us to do with what he's asked us to do. What is God asking you to do with what he's asked you to do? What way is he calling you to walk out the where he's positioned you or the what he's put upon you as a responsibility? Do you even know? Or do we just get caught up in such a swirl that we think whatever is most advantageous, whatever is most beneficial, whatever is most lucrative, whatever seems to connect me with the greatest amount of influence or social network or resources or popularity or power or results or on and on and on, do we use the world's value system in order to qualify the things that God has called us to? And I would consider tonight even with the individuals that we've evaluated, that it takes a transformed mind in order to discern. Again, Romans 12, 2, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can actually discern what the will of God is. Where the will of God gets set before us. And we understand that consequentially, God may ask of us things that the world may mock us for. Because God is operating with a different wisdom. God is not working the same way the world is, and he's not thinking the same way that rulers and powers are. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9, For had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to that cross, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. That God will call us to moments where our acts or our obedience leads us into places or spaces or conversations where the world rallies around us and rulers and powers seem to mock us, where it looks like we fail, where it looks like we step back, where it looks like we're disconnected, where it looks like we're cut off, where it looks like we're disqualified, where it looks like we're down and out, where it looks like they've killed us, where it looks like they criticize us, where it looks like we're left for dead. And just like Jesus, in the moment where they said, you did it for everybody else, but you can't do it for yourself. Come down. Had they known what was actually being accomplished the way that Jesus was walking out his call, they never would have crucified him the way that they did. 
God is working with a different wisdom. And I feel encouraged in my own heart to suggest to you that some of you have the right platform. You just haven't yet had the right perspective. That some of you are in the right position. There has just been counsel that has tried to influence a particular agenda that's associated with how you walked out what it is that you might know God has authentically spoken about you. And that some of us are being opened up to or influenced by agendas to shortcut the process. And that God is interested in the long haul and not just how quickly you might seem to arrive at the what everyone else is going to appreciate or applaud. And that tonight the Lord is looking to touch our hearts and to illuminate of sorts our understanding by the Spirit so that we can see clearly things that up until this moment might have been clouded in the way that we've been evaluating the way that things have been going on. And the Lord wants to give real enlightenment and wisdom. And God wants to give real grace so that you can walk in discernment and so that you can know your lane and so that you can know what is for you, what's not for you, so that in moments when you're being influenced to compromise, like Daniel, you can say, look, bro, I can't be bought. I can't be incentivized in order to be derailed or to compromise my alignment to God. And like David, with a humility and a meekness and a brokenness, you can prostrate yourself before people and the process to say God is going to have to do it his way because whatever way gets opened up to me where I can get into it in a way where it won't honor the way God wants to do it I don't actually need it that bad because if God won't do it I'll do without it and only the spirit can birth that inside of us in a way that is real freedom and is authentic. If God won't do it, I'll do without it. I'm going to ask us all to stand. We're, we're going to pray in a particular way, and we're even going to pray for one another. Man, I really sense the Lord's encouragement to keep us Moving, And when I say forward, I'm not using that word the same way that the world would, right? Because at times forward in God looks like backwards to the world, right? God determines what forward actually means, right? But I really sense the encouragement of the Lord to keep us moving forward in the things of God, in the call of God that's upon our life, in the stewardship of unique assignments and influences and spaces of influence that God has called us to and then strategically postured us or positioned us for. Man, I really sense the encouragement of the Lord. Like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how things have been going. <laughs> right? It's almost like Moses in Deuteronomy. After 40 years, he's like, hey guys, look, we kind of need to talk about how things have been going. It's not been going that great. Like, we, we need to kind of, like, figure this thing out. Right? Not like the chastisement and the punishment of the Lord. But the evaluation of, on a heart level, what's been happening in our hearts that has been moving us to handle 
the processes and circumstances of life the way that we have been. And that the Lord would bear up under us. I bore you on wings as eagles. Right? God reminds David in 2 Samuel 7. He says, don't you remember? I'm the one that found you out in the pasture. I'm the one that called you. I'm the one that raised you up. I'm the one that delivered you from all of your enemies. I'm the one that anointed you. I'm the one that put you in the position. He's like, don't you remember these things? Don't you remember that you were disqualified? That no one else was really looking at you? Don't you remember that if it had been up to you and only you along the way, that you would have time and time again worked yourself out of the very thing that I've called you to do? He's like, David, don't you remember that it's been my might, my grace, my faithfulness, my power that has continued to press you through the processes and to process you and to transform you to where you could actually bear the things that I've said about you and we could actually walk that way together? Don't you remember these things? And in the consideration of that, David sits down and he says, Lord, who am I that you are looking at my life? Right? Psalm 8, verse 4, David writes, who is man that you are mindful of him? David is essentially saying, why are you so interested in what's going on with me? Why are you so interested in the way that things are happening in my life? Who am I that you are mindful of me? I want you to know tonight that the Lord is mindful of you and that he is very interested in your story. He is very interested in your journey. He is very mindful of you and the things that he's called you to do, the things that he's graced you for the ways right now that he has been uniquely processing you in order to continue in the things that he's spoken to you. But he has an absolute journey for each one of us and transformation along the way. Development. The process matters to God and it matters how we handle the process. All right, and so I'm going to pray for grace to be processed well. Now that might not sound amazing to some of us <laughs> because I get that. We don't really like process, but grace to be processed well. Grace to handle the processes of God with God's grace, with real discernment that would move us through the scenarios and the circumstances and the testings of life to continue in the things that God has called us for. And so I'm, I'm just going to ask you, um, if you would, would you just uh, kind of grab hands with somebody that's next to you or maybe just put your hand on somebody um, that's there with you. Uh, and as I begin to pray, I'm just going to ask you if you would begin to pray for the person that you're holding hands with or who it is that you're laying hands on right now. I um, mean, we'll just pray together for one another in that way. That God would give us grace 
along the way in the journeying of life to be processed well and to bear up under God's process well. So if, if you would, let's just go ahead. We, we can just begin to pray for the people's hand that we're holding or who it is that we're standing next to. Um, Lord, we just ask you right now, all over the room, for grace. As simple as it may sound, Lord, we want to walk with you and we want to walk well. We want to walk through the processing of life. We want to walk through all of the unique influences and incentivizing. We want to walk through all of, at times, what is counsel that is affecting how we journey. Lord, we want to be opened up to your influence. We want to walk in a real spirit-empowered discernment. We want to walk in this beautiful union with the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Jesus influencing us in how we handle ourselves, in all of the different intersections and places where our heart is being tested, and at times we don't even realize it. Lord, the things that are happening to us and how they're happening and how the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro throughout the earth. You're looking for a heart that is all yours. You're looking for a heart that is not going to be influenced by another. Um, essentially to Elijah, he was more influenced by the voice of the enemy than he was by the voice of God. Elijah had been so overtaken by what the enemy was saying that God could no longer move with a man that was going to bend to the influence of the enemy in a greater way than he was going to the voice of the Lord. And the Lord says, why are you here? Like, how did you actually end up here? Lord, we want to recognize in different moments the influence that's alive in our heart and what it's actually leading us to do, how it is influencing us to move through different scenarios. We want the character of Christ formed in us in an authentic and powerful way, transformation over time to actually be like Jesus in authentic substance where we would exude the nature of a spirit transformation and the evidencing of that in the ways that circumstances want to influence and expose what's actually going on in our hearts. Lord, change us the way that we need to be changed so that we can actually fulfill the things that you have called us to do. Lord, I pray that you would move upon our hearts tonight. Move upon our hearts tonight. Move upon our hearts tonight. Lord, for some of us, it's the consideration of how we've been utilizing our platform, our influence, our power, our prestige, our resources. Like Esther, will you use them for self-preservation? Or can you discern God's purposes that may actually lead you to do the very thing that seems counter to what is your desires for what God has established in your life? Can you discern God's purposes above your own desires or what is the motivations of other people that may be contemporaries or that may share in those sort of unique responsibilities? Lord, we need real grace 
We need our understanding enlightened. We need you to turn the lights on on the inside so that we don't continue to walk around with darkened understandings. Lord, help us so that we can see the way that you see, so that we understand the ways of the Lord in the midst of a corrupt and compromised culture. We want to be in the world, but not be of it. We don't operate the same way that everyone else is operating. And Lord, we want to fulfill the will of God in our generation. So thank you for callings in the room. Thank you for assignments in the room. Thank you for a variety of unique places of influence. Lord, again, in a variety of spheres of life, every space, every place, a powerful people fulfilling the will of God, God's way, in every space, in every place, leveraging what is all of the energy of our life and devotion in order to accomplish the desires that God may have for us? Lord, thank you for discernment in order to rise to the occasion. Thank you for discernment to fulfill the will of God. Yeah, let's just take another moment or two and just continue to pray. Yeah, just another moment or two. Let's just continue to pray. And yeah, Lord, release your vision upon us for what the process has been about. Release your vision upon us so that we're gripped with a bigger vision than ourselves. Release your heart and vision upon us so that we can see beyond just what is the apprehending of a what, some sort of responsibility or, or what have you. Lord, we need something spirit birthed. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, we need you tonight. We need you tonight, Lord. Yeah, I encourage you, be free. Those of us who have been so bound up and swallowed up in self-preserving and protecting, protecting all of our interests and preserving in, in all of the ways that we can leverage, be free to honor God and to fulfill his purposes. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org, or download our app.